Cinematographer Jonathan Fermansky's credits include the film Good Boys. For TV, he's lensed the cult crime comedy Search Party, Inside Amy Schumer, and The Detour. He's shot on massive glaciers, active volcanoes, and in international combat zones. His documentary feature films include The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, May at Last, A Portrait of the Avett Brothers, 30 for 30, Doc and Daryl, Big Men in the Family Business, Trump and Taxes. Jonathan Fomansky, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So as I look at your varied body of work across documentaries and comedy and drama, and I look for like a, a unifying style, but I guess what drew you to become a cinematographer, a director of photography, and uh, how do you apply these techniques to the dif- your different projects? I mean, I kind of came to cinematography accidentally because... I went to film school and like most of the people who go to film school, you want to go to be a writer, director, Spike Lee or a Martin Scorsese, I think is most people's ambition, at least when they first walk through the door. And then as time wore on, I started shooting more projects just because I kind of gravitated towards the camera as a thing a little bit more regularly than a lot of the other things that you can do. And it just kind of ended up, keep, it just snowballed after that. And it just turned out that I just had a lot more passion for cinematography than the other disciplines in the film business. It's so interesting because as you said, when people start, a lot of people are drawn to the idea of uh, directing or writing or things that I don't know, there's like, I think that we, it's very visible cinematography, of course, but it's the, the name is of the cinematographer, or the director of photography is not always the ones that we know. But when you think about great performances uh, and what you really remember, I think the lighting and the setup and the visual is as much a character as anything else. And I, I don't mean to tell you what you do, but I thought it was interesting to some conversations I have with people or say who are editors or whatever the idea of what they said they got to see what a director does is a lot of art but also it's a lot of like a negotiations that maybe as a cinematographer you get to do the art all the time I mean I think that's true I mean directing is its own art form so I have great respect and appreciation for directing and all of the directors that I've had an opportunity to work with but I just know it's not me So I'm happy that cinematography found me or I found it or however it works out. But I think that, I mean, I appreciate what you said about how cinematography obviously is its own art form and can function as a character in a project and in the audience's experience watching that project. I think cinematography can, I don't want to say it can make or break a project because I think ultimately the writing and the performances are the two kind of, they're the foundation of any good project. But I think that cinematography can either elevate or undermine both the writing or the performances, depending on how it's treated and how it's executed. So it's, to me, it's a fundamental part of the process as well, but it, it helps me. It, it, I like to think that what I do is I take other people's things and make it better. That's basically what I'm there to do, besides express myself as a cinematographer individually. I don't know if you prefer cinematographer or director of photography. Actually, I don't know what is the distinction that's best for you. 
I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't know if I have a preference or not. I mean, I think that 20 years ago, you would talk about a cinematographer specifically about somebody who worked in movies. And that was kind of the distinction between director of photography and cinematographer. Although there are people have been calling themselves director of photography in movies for even longer than 20 years. So I'm not sure. I mean, I think these days that distinction doesn't really mean anything, especially given how prevalent things like Netflix and uh, Amazon Prime or whatever, Amazon Video are. It's just, it's kind of, director of photography seems to me to encompass a little bit more specifically what the job is. And cinematographer is just maybe a little bit more of like an artsy way to talk about what we do. But, you know... Again, it's kind of like the the distinction that may have been a little flimsy a little while ago doesn't really exist anymore today. And it's funny because it's not just cinematography as a word, but you know, when I'm in pre-production or when we're on set, we talk about, oh, we need to film this. So it's just like there's these legacy terms, even though we're nowhere near film as we're working today, or like most productions, I should say, are nowhere near film. I guess it's, there's still a lot of mystery. And when I think about cinematography, people who don't have that hands-on experience, we think about lighting or managing that. And I don't know how much is the hands-on because some people will be more involved in, do, in handling the camera. I just don't know the physical aspect. I think, I think that's different from DP to DP. You know, like I think everybody is going to have a slightly different, there's that kind of like spectrum between like the people who want to touch everything and the people who want to basically sit back and orchestrate and just have kind of like a greater sense of the overall work that's being done. And there's nothing wrong with either of those approaches. I'm probably somewhere in the middle. And I think it depends a lot on what kind of project it is. So if I'm doing a documentary, obviously I'm very hands-on throughout the entire process. And you have to be, it's kind of, it's just part of the deal. And on a show like Search Party, I tend to be a little bit hands-on, but a lot of times I do have to step back. I need to pay attention to what the directors are saying and the producers are saying and have an ear open for the hearing what the actors are ruminating about and also talk to the rest of the crew and think about everything else. But then on a movie like Good Boys, that movie just ended up being like too big for me to be as hands-on as I normally like to be. So I did take a little bit more of a step back. It took more of a bird's eye view just because there was so much going on and it just made more sense for the good of the project and just to make sure that I was comfortable with everything that was happening, that I wasn't in the trenches, as they say. Like I was just a little bit more of like a, an overseer than, than somebody grabbing stuff and running across the set. So those two uh, projects, I think that they are very challenging. As I try to imagine your approach, because as I say, Search Party, it, is, it has this humor, it is a thriller. And I'm, as I'm watching it, and it's such an involving story anyway, so it's hard to even uh, separate myself and like, try to analyze what your lighting and camera decisions are. And you're playing this line between being a comedy and a thriller. And I thought, I don't know how I'm phrasing it. I just thought that there may be some complicated to, uh, choices that you're making to make sure that balance is kept. Well, I think that's true. And we do talk about that a lot as we're preparing to shoot the show and while we're shooting the show, because it's true, Search Party has one foot in both camps. So it is a comedy, but it is a drama. It's silly and it's sometimes slapstick and screwball, but other times it's murder and people and kidnapping and people going missing and things like that. So it, it's hard to say that there's any one approach to like how we tackle Search Party. 
And a lot of times we do have to think about like, is the point of this scene, is this a comedy scene or is this a drama scene or is it both? And how do we tackle that? And sometimes it can be a little bit of a riddle, but that's one of the most enjoyable parts of the show is that it doesn't exist in one world. We get to explore a lot of different things and a lot of different styles and a lot of different, a lot of different ways to express ourselves through the camera work and the lighting, but it all still trying to make it feel like it's one world. It's one world where like we're actually seeing real people in a real part of the world. I like, uh, yes, I, I just love the approach and I think it's so successful. And just to speak about the story of it as well, it, it makes you reflect, they get in, the characters get involved in this whole drama centered around this quest of Dory at the beginning, who she's looking for purpose in her life. The things that we do when we look for purpose in our life yeah. or diversion. Do you like to speak about what you enjoy about the story? I mean, I think the writing on the show is fantastic. And it's one of the most enjoyable parts of working on it is that we get to kind of go on this journey a little bit more intimately and we get to see it unfold. And it's just as much fun for us to sit at the table read and hear the actors reading the script for the first time out loud as it is to watch the final product when everything is done and colored and mixed and, and all of that kind of stuff. I, I just think that the writing kind of drives a lot of the decisions that we make, obviously. And it gives us, as I was saying before, it gives us a lot of opportunity to do a lot of different things. Yes, so tell me, because a lot of people don't realize that the cinematographers are taking part, maybe so, even from the beginning before the actors are even attached. And how is it that with the table read and the, the kind of notes you make and the... It does start, like, I remember the first time I met Charles and Sarah Violet, who are the two people who created the show, and they're, they direct most of the episodes and they show run the show. So they're, it's their show. And from that day, when we met in a diner in Hollywood, we immediately started talking about the look. So the conversation has been going on for five years about what the show is and how we wanted to treat it and do all of that. And then it's a constant evolution. I think that one of the challenges of Search Party, any TV show really, but in my experience, Search Party even a little bit more, is trying to keep it as consistent an experience as we can. So it does feel like one season leads to another. It's one really big story that takes a lot of left and right turns and goes in a lot of different directions, but still give us the opportunity to do different things, to be in different environments and try and like show things in, in different ways, depending on what's going on in the scene. So these conversations continue through pre-production, through table reads, through location scouts. There are many times you walk into a room or a building or a house or whatever, and we think about like, oh my gosh, you know, this, this takes place in the kitchen and let's go over here and look at the kitchen, la la la. But then we might see a room or a space or something else where we say like, you know what, this feels more appropriate for what we're trying to do. And that can then maybe make the, make the writers change the scene so it takes place in a different environment or something like that. So it's an evolution. It's an ongoing conversation up until the point where we're actually shooting. For example, on the last season, we were shooting in this one home, a large kind of, I wouldn't call it a mansion, but a very big home in upstate New York. And uh, there's a room that was basically just filled with mirrors, floor to ceiling mirrors everywhere and all that stuff. And there was nothing in the script that took place in a room like that. But we all just kind of felt like, well, it would be a shame not to take advantage of it. So one of the scenes was adapted to take place there. 
And that's just one of the most enjoyable parts of it is that you really can react to things as they are in front of you, which is, is it just makes the, ultimately the, the, the project better in the end. Instead of being rigid and saying like, no, this needs to be like this or this. So you kind of go with the flow a little bit. And you were discussing about good boys and the other, and how that became a, uh, how you say, you, you took a little bit of a step back to just see the whole process. Yeah, I mean, partially that was because good boys was the biggest thing I had done up, up until that point in my career. And I, I'll admit that there was a little bit of intimidation going into that. It was a studio movie. It was my first studio movie. And I just wanted to be as prepared and aware and as nimble as possible for anything that came up. So that meant just being a little bit more of, I mean, I don't know if, how appropriate this is, but like an armchair general than being a soldier in the field. And I think I prefer being a soldier in the field, but you know, that project just for me, it meant that I could be next to the directors and, and kind of talking to them and communicating with the crew and just letting them run with the ball a little bit more. But then I could just make sure that like the ship is always pointing in the right direction and think more about like the bigger creative choices and less about the minutia. Although sometimes the fun is in the minutia. So it's, I, I wish I could have been a little bit more intimately involved. And I kind of bristle at saying that I wasn't intimately involved because I, of course I was, I mean, that was five months of my life spent filming that movie. So um, including all the prep. So it's, there's, it, it was always going to be an intimate thing, but you know, less tangible maybe is a better way to put it. It just feels like more like you're, instead of you're cooking the meal, you're telling somebody how to cook it. But ultimately, as long as it's good, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Oh, it's very good. And I think there was such a, again, there's this line, I, I think it's, it's like search party, there's this line, there's this tenderness, there's a very lovely sweetness about that film with the humor. And then you don't, uh, there's a like, a, they're just approaching maturity for the boys. So I think it, they could go over that lines very easily. So I don't know how you, this is something that you bear in mind when you're planning the, the, the look of it. A little bit. Obviously, I, similar to search party, like I can't take any credit for the writing. But the Gene and Lee and, and the other writers who were involved, he made sure that although the movie was basically about a bunch of 11-year-olds who are very vulgar and say a lot of vulgar things, that they needed to be also charming and endearing and sweet and funny. And that is a tough thing to do. And so it kind of affected my job in that I needed to make sure that I wasn't getting in the way of that, that not only were the directors and the writers given enough room to say like, oh, okay, we're thinking like maybe we want to do this or this, but also that the actors, that the boys didn't feel too constrained and they felt that they could be natural because if they felt natural and comfortable, then that charm and that fun and that sweetness would come through a lot more naturally and it, it wouldn't feel clumsy or anything like that. So I tried to create an environment where people didn't feel too constricted in terms of like what they're, what they wanted to do or where they wanted to be or how they wanted to stage things. And speaking about, cause you were talking about taking a, a, a step back and, and the distances one creates when one's doing something large. And I don't know for this forthcoming season of search party, 
was that being filmed under COVID conditions? I mean, that's another. No. I don't know yeah, that we wrapped season four two weeks before the United States went on lockdown. So that we wrapped right at the end of February last year. And I think so for a few weeks, people had been talking about it, but it was always like, okay, there's a one case here, or there's another case there. No one was really having the pandemic conversation. And then we shoot that film in, I'm sorry, we shoot that TV show in New York. I live in LA. So we finished, I came back to LA. And then two weeks later, we were in full lockdown. So we just missed the COVID, the pandemic experience. Uh, but you are now working on some projects that are working around that. And what did, what is that like? It's still being figured out to a lot of, to, to a great extent. Yeah, I started working again around the end of May, beginning of June. And it was on small documentary projects, which was basically just interviews with people in a room. And at that time, there weren't any guidelines. There weren't any of these protocols that people had come up with for, to follow. So what we did was it was a lot of just sometimes me by myself in a room and I would be there all morning. We would maybe rent like a bungalow at a hotel or something where we knew we could keep a strict control over who was in coming in and out of the room. The hotel would take care of sanitizing the space. I would come in, I would spend all morning rearranging the furniture and setting up the camera and the lights and all that kind of stuff. And then the, the interviewee would come in, sit in the chair, never touch anything. And then an hour later, get up and walk out. And that was it. And I was 10 feet away the whole time. Everybody else was on Zoom. I had like iPads and other things set up around the room so other people could watch. And that was it. And that was kind of like trying to figure it out at the time. Now, like I shot a pilot in October and there was a typical network pilot that our crew was 80 or 100 people or whatever it was. And we had a full COVID team with us. We got tested three times a week and everybody had to wear a mask, of course. And there were people who would walk around with hand sanitizer. They would make sure we were socially distancing. And it's, it's been figured out to the point where people can work somewhat effectively in a COVID safe environment. But there is an inherent slowing down of everything that happens with all that. So it's trying to figure out like, okay, how can we still get a full day's work out of this and be safe and have everybody feel comfortable as it's happening. So it's been a learning curve and we're definitely getting better at it, but I think we have a little bit further to go to really figure out how we do this in a safe way that is also still efficient and cost-effective and all of that. And we're not sacrificing any creative ambition in order to make everybody feel safe and comfortable. And I can't imagine, and I know people who are working in it, but I haven't seen with my eyes what that is like. So I do wonder about scenes that are to do with intimacy, or I don't know how is even does it affect the writing, or I don't know. I know you're talking about a pilot, so you can't really discuss. But no, I mean it's but it's true. There's a movie that we were gonna shoot last spring that obviously got pushed and pushed, and now we're hoping to shoot it this coming spring. And there's a scene that takes place at a sex party in a house in the hills where people are supposed to be, they're supposed to be naked and very close to each other and, and all of that kind of thing. And it's not like pornographic, it's a comedy. It's just, it's silly more than it is anything else, but that still requires a lot of thought. So that's a very complicated thing. And so the writing of a scene like that will probably change 
to accommodate making sure everybody does feel comfortable or we'll make decisions on the day and we'll say like, okay, we'll make sure that like we can shoot this in a way that it feels like people are closer to each other than they actually are. But all that said, on the pilot, on another pilot I'm doing next month and on the same movie, we have scenes where it's two people riding in a car together and it's hard to write around that. And there's no way, like there's no way that you can change the physical proximity. I mean, you can do things like you can shoot one person and then they leave and then you shoot the other person, but that's not good for the actors because then they're acting with a tennis ball or something like that. So none of it is, none of the solutions are great, but we have to kind of figure these things out. And unfortunately, sometimes the writing can help solve it, but other times you just have to come up with a creative solution to figure it out. And that's where, I mean, we're hoping that this doesn't last forever. I don't want to make it like so many uh, conversations these days. Yeah. But I, you know, that's where uh, then, I guess, in, you, were, you were talking about how um, cinematographers are like an actor themselves. Mm -hmm. Or how you say the digital, the, the, the AI can be like an actor itself. Maybe you, you stepping in to be more of an actor when it can't be done by people. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's in a way, yeah. I mean, certainly I've had to play people, not in like, I'm not acting, but because there's no physical space, I've been the person that the person is acting sometimes. But yeah, the camera is a character one way or another. And the best thing that we can do is try and make it so that the camera is, I mean, again, still like reinforcing the story or the comedy or the drama or both but um, not getting in the way of it. And whether that means in terms of getting, getting in the way of telling the story or getting in the way of making people feel comfortable, that's just a responsibility that we have to bear. I'm Lainey Sperry from a sophomore student studying American history and film studies at Barnard College. I'm an associate podcast producer and interviewer here at The Creative Process. One thing that stood out to me in listening to this great conversation with Jonathan Fermansky is how adaptable and fluid his creative process is and the work of a director of photography seems to be. While I don't have experience with cinematography myself, I can connect with a lot of what Fermansky discusses as a photography student. I think in photographing, and I assume it's similar with filming, there's this double-sided nature of the medium. On one hand, you have this incredible ability to capture exactly what's in front of you, which is much harder in drawing or painting. But on the other hand, you're completely at the mercy of what's in front of you. And even with studio lighting or post-editing, the raw art is built by something you have much less control over. I think this often comes to the forefront in documentary work, where the goal of the project is to both present something accurately while also narrativizing that experience in some way. I remember when I was in a photography class in high school and I was first being taught about basic camera settings like aperture, shutter speed, all that stuff. And my teacher explained to the class that the goal of documentary photography was to capture an image that looks as close to what you see as possible. It seemed almost counterintuitive to what I'd understood about cameras as I'd always assumed somewhat that a machine's view of the world had to be intrinsically more accurate than my own. But in shifting my perspective and learning more about photographic theory, I started to understand that a photograph could be seen as a recreation of an event, not just a depiction. 
But back to Jonathan Fermansky's work more specifically, I think in so many ways a film set is another recreation of some other reality, be it existing or imagined. And so the work of a director of photography requires this adaptability in figuring out how to best recreate this recreation. It's clear from this interview that there are so many moving parts involved with creating a visual language for a show, movie, or documentary. And the way that Fermansky is able to deftly adapt to all of the different pieces allows a wholly new creative process to emerge, both one of a collective vision and individual creative identity. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with cinematographer Jonathan Fermansky. And I like so much you speaking about the comedy. So these ones are uh, we're we're talking about uh, combining a thriller or combining a, a film about uh, very young people and so the coming of age. But what is it like to say work on inside Amy Schumer and those? I don't know the design thinking behind that. It's more improvised. How does it work? I mean, Amy's show was amazing to be a part of because I mean, not only I got to work with Amy, who's super talented and the rest of the writing staff and the other actors and the entire crew, like everybody was fantastic. It felt, we had a lot of the same people from the beginning to the end. So it felt very much like a family experience. But one of the strengths of it was that it was sketch comedy. So for every episode, there were five or six segments. And some of those segments were Amy doing interviews. Some of them were Amy doing stand up. But then there were all of these little, you could call them little short films. And all of those films kind of existed unto themselves, or I shouldn't say kind of, they were, they all existed unto themselves. So they had to stand on their own two feet. Now, it's not the most efficient way to work because you're investing basically as much resource in every sketch as every other sketch, so to speak. But it means that at the beginning of the day, we could do like some silly scene of Amy on a date in a restaurant. And the second half of the day is a thriller or a film noir, or it's a romance or it's some other completely different genre and it meant that we really got to do a lot of different creative things and tackle everything in a slightly different way it was very far from feeling like it was the same thing over and over again not only was every day different but every morning was different from every afternoon and that just helped it keeping fresh and fun and invigorating as we were putting it together yeah, it must be so fun to work on that. And I was, before this uh, conversation, uh, you'd send to me some of the selection of different documentaries you've done and uh, different scripted things you've done. And I was surprised speaking about a, a comedian and, and the other, a different style than Amy Schumer. I was surprised you hadn't mentioned the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling as oh. one of your I, I think that he's so, I admire them both as comedians, but I just think that, yes, he's the, the, the Zen and uh, what is it like to work on that? I mean, I think the only reason that I m didn't mention that one was because I only worked on, I was only one of several cinematographers to work on it. So I don't feel as much of a sense of ownership of a movie like that, that I would have say May It Last or Loud Quite Loud or other documentaries that I've worked on which also had other cinematographers, but I just felt like I'm, I played a bigger role in creating the visual experience kind of connected to those movies. So, but that said, 
I think the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling is, is an amazing documentary. I think it's a, a wonderful window, not just into his process, which was unique, but also into him as a person and learning all about how he felt about what it means to be a human being and how you treat other human beings and how you, how you help other human beings was way more eye-opening for me than the, uh, the comedy stuff, which was already great. So it was one, I'm so glad that I got to be involved with it. And I, if I highly recommend anybody who hasn't seen it or hasn't heard of Gary Shandling should watch it because I think it, it is really a, an affirming and fun and just really touching tribute. Yeah, because it's he's and we can say most people accept like not only he like uh, set a whole model for television, but he's really a comedian of compassion, which mm-hmm. I think that, I'm, of course comedians must have compassion, but it does seem like he was a rare bird. Yeah, I mean, I love the way that you said that comedian of compassion. I think is is a very clear and, and good way to put it. He, I met him once. I was working on a completely different project, and he just happened to be there and. So I can't say that I knew him as a person, but just getting to know him through the work that I did on the movie and hearing people talk about him and then watching the movie and being an audience member and then a fan, or I was a fan before and then became more of a fan after watching the movie. He did seem like a really singular guy. And it's just, I guess, even more unfortunate that he took his own life. Yes, sometimes, yes, it can be, it can be too, too much, I guess, when we're born sensitive. And yeah. you've known some amazing artists. I mean, beyond those that you even collaborated with, Judd Apatow was on that. But, you know, just who, who are some of those artists that, I, I don't know, they what they said or what they passed on, and that meant something to you? I mean, there are, that, that's almost kind of like an endless list. I mean, I certainly, the filmmakers that I aspired to were people like, Stanley Kubrick and even everything from Stanley Kubrick to Steven Spielberg. And I'm not trying to draw any distinction between those two guys, but I think their careers were very different. And so, but that's kind of like those creative influences are are just kind of like everywhere. And as far as kind of personal influences, I have been lucky that I've been able to work with a lot of really great artists, whether they're musicians or actors or painters or fine artists or whatever. But the people who I have learned the most from are some of my fellow collaborators. And one of the people who back before I was really a cinematographer or a director of photography, and I was working as a camera assistant, was this guy named William Rexer, who is also a cinematographer. And he is great at what he does, but he was just more just like a great guy. And he taught me a lot about how, what it means to be um, an adult in the world, and then also on set and how you interact with people and how you treat people and how you present yourself and how what all of these things mean and he's just kind of like a smart but also just compassionate and fair and 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 great guy and so I learned more from him behind the scenes than I ever learned from anybody else in front of the camera and you worked with him on Arctic Sun I worked with his wife on Arctic Sun so but he William might have been involved in a consulting kind of capacity because that was another that was a documentary that it it was a while ago so I might be misremembering a little bit but it was started the story kind of changed a little bit and then I came on board and then I shot this kind of like new version of the story which 
frankly happens in almost every documentary. You go out with the intention of doing one thing and then the story tells you like, oh no, here's really what you're filming. It just with Arctic Sun that unfolded over several years instead of over several weeks or several months. So, so I can't remember, <coughs> excuse me, I can't remember how involved William was, but his wife Dallas was one of the producers of the movie. Mm. And tell us the story of Arctic Sun. Well, Arctic Sun was the story of a guy who lived in this town of Old Crow, which is up in the Yukon above the Arctic Circle, a town of about 200 people. And as he put it, it was where people go where they either can't go anywhere else or they can't leave. So it's you know, just very remote. And his son, who was living with his wife, or, or should I say ex-wife, was down in Seattle, in the Seattle area. And they were kind of estranged, man, and, and, but the guy was getting into, his son was getting into a little bit of trouble um, with drugs and alcohol and things like that. So his father decided to bring him up to this town, Old Crow, where he would learn to essentially live off the land and fend for himself, because it's a little bit more of like a hunting community things are where they are they it's not like there's no everything had to be brought in so people were hunting they had to be resourceful they had to be mindful and efficient and and all of that and so it was about that kind of journey of the son coming up to live with his dad and learn to kind of i mean i guess ultimately the idea was that he would it was kind of like a version of rehab for him but instead of going to a facility where that we're kind of like more used to he was kind of like more like learning it by like being out in the wild now part of the story of course is that like in small places like that there are still problems with alcoholism and drug abuse and things like that so it was trying to figure out how he could learn all the right lessons being there and uh, come out just a little bit more, a little bit more self-aware and, and self-confident. And so the making of that uh, film, so how were you transformed in the making of that film? And, and how do you, I think that many people would be drawn to maybe having a transformation like that or are interested in what it's like to be transformed for a kind of survival that we I guess we're facing it's it's not that far down the line I think if we're seeing the consequences of what we're doing to the environment but I just what was that like for you certainly I mean it was transformative for me not only because well, I think just to step back and say for say anytime you do a documentary project and you're spending that much time in an intimate fashion with people who are in a, a, a situation that is so different from yours, you're automatically going to learn something. And that's part of the enjoyment of it. And that does end up kind of pushing the direction of the film or the project in ways that you can't kind of predict. And so I learned a lot about what it means to be a human being and watching people who have figured out how to string nets under a foot and a half of ice across a river in the middle of winter when it's 30 below. It's remarkable. It just, it's, it kind of was reaffirming in a lot of ways for me. And then we did have a lot of conversations about the environment because one of the things that people in that part of the world rely on are things like herds of caribou that come through and fish and things like that. And given that there, there is a lot of environmental destruction happening, 
those herds are thinning out or they're not necessarily coming nearby anymore. And this is something that those people in those parts of the world have to wrestle with. And it's not a, for them, it's not, it's not a, there's nothing metaphoric about it. It's like a real life issue for them because that's where everything is coming from that helps them to survive. So it was omnipresent when we were making the film. And I'm sure it's even more present now because I think when we made that movie, it was before all of the Arctic National Wildlife Reserve drilling and things like that. So it's probably even more of, a, of an issue now. I mean, the irony is that the biggest employers up in that part of the world are oil and gas because that's the big industry up there. So a lot of the people in those communities have no choice but to work for these companies that are actively destroying the environment around them. And yeah, it's strange. And yet if they weren't there, they have to preserve the environment as well. They're working with it. So it's, I don't have a complete understanding of that. Uh, In terms of your own, I don't know all the details of your childhood and your upbringing. I mean, it wasn't in a harsh environmental circumstance like that but what was it like and i grew up in colorado which is mountainous and it can get cold in the winter time but certainly not as cold as it gets up north of the arctic circle and i was it was in the suburb of denver so it was a very very standard straightforward middle class north american upbringing and and yeah so it was even though a lot of the terrain between those two places, between Colorado and Old Crow, were familiar. It was it was wildly different in terms of experience. It was it was just a completely a, a complete. It was it was just like a more like being an Old Crow. I I guess would you could say was just a much more intense way of living than it was in in Denver or outside Denver. And so I imagine as you are there, so you I can imagine you had some kind of. A- thirst for travel and exploring that has brought you to your career now. And I also know, I, I don't know the, your whole uh, career path, but I think you have filmed in international combat zones as well. And what was that like? I mean, it's, it's one of the greatest side effects of my career that I didn't, I wasn't seeking out and I, I wouldn't have predicted would have happened to me if you asked me when I was 20 years old. I was 20 years old, I just, I wanted to work on movies. And I think in my head at that time, that just meant working in Hollywood on something or whatever. It was a very vague notion of what it meant to work in the film business. And then I kind of, outside of college, I started working as a camera assistant. I worked with William, as I was talking about before. And then documentaries kind of happened accidentally. They weren't something that I was seeking out, but William and other people, like they knew that I was interested in shooting, so they would kind of push me towards doing documentary work. And it kind of exposed me to things like traveling and seeing different parts of the world that I had never considered before that. And so I'm really grateful that I had all of those opportunities. I'm really grateful that, that world opened it up, itself up to me. And I, the, I, I, I guess the the only downside is that like once you've done it and then you stop doing it because you're working on something in New York or Los Angeles, it just makes you want to do it a little bit more. It's now that now when I don't get to travel, of course, the pandemic has been terrible for traveling the world, but it just makes you want to get out and and get some more stamps in the passport. Oh, I feel that very much. I was doing a lot of travel 
before and now it's going uh, sometimes you feel like it's an adventure going down the road yeah that's true <laughs> it's so strange we do hope you get a chance for more travel but i think oh, that there's you. definitely a lot of complexity with with your projects that it's always exciting. I think it's really, you know, we're working with a lot of students and they really want to know about this, how they can, they're studying all these things, but they really want to have a sense of purpose in their life. They're so thirsty for it. And so people like you who have just taken what was a dream and made it into your life is, is really fascinating to them. And on top of that, you've done, we haven't really, we've touched a little bit on your documentaries, but you've done documentaries of uh, musicians and again band of travelers and that the whole approach to that which i i love too is very as you say it's very intimate and it feels so candid and almost voyeuristic yeah i've been lucky i have to admit i've been really lucky that i i as i said i came to documentaries accidentally but i'm so fortunate that i and i'm so thankful that i was that i was given that opportunity or those opportunities because it really has opened up the world to me and it it enables me to think about things in a completely different way than I think I would have otherwise. And being in these situations, I think the ones that were the most enjoyable, whether it was a musician on tour or it was something like Arctic Sun and being with a small family, it's when you get to be in, room, in a room with people and see the world through their eyes for a little while, that's when it's the most enjoyable. And that's when you're really kind of like thinking about the way to express that in the best way possible. And I think that's where the most creativity comes from is when you're exposed to these things that are new and, and eye-opening that, that provide the most inspiration for thinking about things a little bit differently and providing maybe, maybe it's different for you, maybe it's different for the audience, maybe it's different for somebody, but a different bit of a different perspective on the story or the people. Yes, yeah, so tell us about uh, the Pixies and the Abbott brothers. Oh, okay, so the Pixies was, was that... That might have been the first documentary that I did basically the entirety of. I mean, I didn't do it by myself. It was me and this guy named Paul Dukuchitz were the two cinematographers on the movie because it took place over the course of a year and it's just hard to like be involved for that much time by yourself, especially when you're on tour. But, you know, I was there at the beginning and I was at the end and same is true for Paul and we very much did that movie together. But it was, I had been a fan of the band my entire life or at least as long as I'd known about them. In fact, I remember, I think I was in, maybe I was a senior in high school or something like that. And I saw music videos there, it's like 11 o'clock at night on MTV. And I immediately drove out to the only record store that I knew was open that late in Denver. And I bought the album because it was like, I can't, I just know that these guys are going to be that important to me. So I got to be around them, which was amazing. I mean, it's, it was amazing to get to watch them be the Pixies when I've been such a fan of theirs for so long. That's so an experience that I can't, that I don't think I'll ever be able to replicate. As opposed to the Avid Brothers documentary, which at that point, it was 15 years later or something. No, that can't be true. It was 10 years later. So I was a much more experienced documentary camera person. I was able to come into that project with a lot more confidence and a lot more like ability in terms of like knowing how I wanted to tell the story and things like that, how I wanted to film things. But I had no idea who the Aver brothers were. I had never heard of them. They were not, they were famous, but they were just not famous to me. And so that on that project, I got to discover them as people, but as well as artists as we were making the film. And now I can't, I can't imagine not having their music in my life. And I'm so 
glad that I got to not only get to know them as people because they're great people, but get to know their body of work, see them create. I mean, I love that your podcast is called The Creative Process because the creative process to me is one of the most fascinating things that you can observe. And Scott and Seth, the two Avid brothers, were so, I don't know how to put this, but they were so un unintimidated by the camera and the presence of a crew that it felt like we really got a real window into who they were and how they create. And they weren't necessarily thinking about as best as I could tell, they weren't thinking about the fact that like, Oh, there's a camera here. Maybe I want to say something clever or maybe I want to do this or want to do that, which can sometimes happen. They were just really just themselves the whole time. And so I, hopefully the movie reflects that. But that, as an experience for me, being there was one of the best parts of it, was getting to see them be real in their real lives and also in their creative lives. Yes, it's so interesting. Yes, so people can become unconscious of the camera, but yes, I guess you see that transition a lot more where people are staging reality or they're staging yeah. the candidness, but, but knowing it's the real deal. It's, it's, it, it shouldn't be the case, but it's sometimes people don't know how to be real. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes when you watch things, you can kind of feel it. And I'm not going to, I don't want to call anybody out about that. But, you know, I've definitely watched documentary projects or things that are supposed to be documentary projects, and they feel very canned. They feel very much like they're, 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 there's something that they're trying to project, whether, whether it's an image or an idea or whatever, it just doesn't feel, I don't want to say dishonest, but it doesn't feel honest. And I, I like that. I like these opportunities where you get to show people and the world for what it is. Yeah, that's lovely. Well, I also find it for your early one with the pixies is what that was very, I mean, to me, it felt so intimate. I just thought I was a spy. A spy. It's a little bit too, too, too much sometimes. I think that this, the, what the pixies movie really, I think what we really captured that I haven't seen very often is I think we, we were able to show what life is like on the road for a band that's doing shows and, and living in a bus and going from town to town, showing what that's really like. And it's alternatingly thrilling and completely boring. And it's not, it can feel very, I mean, it can feel more than, it can feel like, it's like the ultimate, just like Groundhog Day, where it's just the same thing. It might be a different town, but if you're just going from the bus to a hotel, to a venue, to a bus, to a hotel, to a venue, then it's basically all one big feedback loop feedback loop is that right it's a loop of some kind and like i said i think we did a really good job of capturing that experience for them so it was like the music okay that's great and these people like they're interesting in, obviously but then this is what the life is like and so that's that's one of the things that i'm i'm most proud of with loud quiet loud it's interesting how you speak about the loop and and i like very much of course it's very nice what you say about the creative process i am obviously a 
fascinated in the creative process. Uh, I feel like it's like one of the challenges of artists, but of people in general, is I think about what is this nature of being a child, of being, which we, I think that we're all in touch with when we're in the creative process, because we're playing and making things, just like children. We remember what that's like again. And I just feel like it's one of the challenges that we all face, is that how to maintain our innocence through maturity. And so just being able to see anyone who's able to hold on to those moments, even if it's like on tour when things get monotonous and mm-hmm. find the fresh and the new in it, uh, it's just something we can learn a lot from. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, you know, how, I mean, I guess that experience is a little bit different for everybody, but I guess what I've been thinking recently over the last few years, maybe this is just me getting older, but I just, I think, I kind of think we're all just still children and that adulthood is just a facade that we all put on ourselves to like, so we can present and say like, oh, I'm wise and I have experience and I have, I have history that I can point to and draw on and all that kind of stuff. But when push comes to shove, we're all just, we're all still kids at heart. And I think we all want to be kids at heart, not childish, which I'm not saying immature, but more childlike and just having people want a sense of wonder. People want a sense of amazement and new. And I think that it's just, if you're worried about being an adult, like I think it feels like you cross, you, you close those opportunities off to yourself. And, and beyond, you worked on an episode of Little America. You really did this oh, yeah. wonderful. Yeah, that's just, yes. Little America, I'm not quite sure, you know, what to say about it. I love working on that story. And if people haven't seen the show, Little America in general is an anthology series about the immigration experience in America. And it's about people who are on their way or people who are already here, or just the idea, the idea of America as a destination for people from other parts of the world. And it's the different episodes are like, some of them are funny, some are sweet, some are a little bit more dramatic. The one that I got to work on tells the story about a young man in Syria who is gay and lives in, an, in a society where that's not acceptable and his family finds out and so he goes on the run and he tries to make his way to America because he's basically trying to escape the wrath of his family and, and his community. And it was an important story to tell. It was beautiful acting, wonderful writing. It was an opportunity to try and be a little bit more expressive with this thing, things in the cinematography. It's a little bit less of like a, I mean, it definitely takes place in the real world, but we tried to make it feel a little bit more magical in parts as Rafiq, who is the, the young man, as he's making this journey and has successes and failures along the way. It was important to try and show that visually, that journey. And that was really a really fulfilling experience and something to be a part of. These are definitely such important stories to tell. And uh, your contribution to that uh, series is uh, is very beautifully done. I feel like I have been, how you say, getting you to speak about all your projects and we've only just covered a part of them. But I think think that I I just want uh, people to discover your work. And I guess just if they don't already know it, and I guess just in closing, we've discussed so many things from the importance of the art, the role of cinematography in, in, 
in um, movie and television making, the environment, America's place in the world. It's just a, quite a few things. But I guess in closing, as you think, because we're an educational initiative, as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what would you want young people to know, preserve and remember? I mean, I've I say this as a person who doesn't have children. I've always thought that education was the most important thing that people can invest in because that's what determines what the next generation and the generations after that are going to be able to achieve, whether it's artistically or politically or whatever, anything, you have doctors, lawyers, what have you. I think if I was going to say anything to people who are trying to come up through the film business or in any other business, any other discipline that, as I was kind of saying before, like keep that sense of wonderment available to yourself and keep that sense of wanting to discover and journey and learn. Because as soon as you stop learning, that's when everything kind of like starts to close itself off to you. And I think not to get political about it, but I think that's part of the problem. Some of the things that we're seeing these days in America and around the world is that People are, I mean, people talk about echo chamber and things like that. People are kind of closing themselves off to new ideas. And I think the more we can just say like we're open, I'm not saying we have to accept all ideas as equal, but you know, we need to be open to hearing them and understanding that there are a lot more people in the world than live in your neighborhood or live in your immediate vicinity or in your family. And all of those people have perspectives. And you have to respect that. Otherwise, again, just all of those doors just shut. And then we're stuck with nothing. I think that is such a wonderful, beautiful message. And I guess I, I think that I see from your example in your own life, that seems to be what the, the arts have given you and uh, the arts give us all. So I want to thank you, Jonathan Fromansky, for inviting us into your imaginative world and uh, sharing your insights and telling your stories through um, images, character, uh, music, comedy, and drama, and for your important contributions uh, to cinematic storytelling. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Lainey Sperry Fromm. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadoulis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.